Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Outcasts with me, Tim, much shorter in real life, Downey. And David, those can't be his real teeth, can they? Berry. On today's show, we scale the dizzying heights of the Outlander mountain range, braving avalanches and the loss of extremities to find the frozen yet oddly perfectly preserved body of a stone-cold Outlander favourite. He's been playing young Ian since 2017 and we've managed to catch him before he runs off into the woods again. He is, of course, the wonderful Mr. John Bell. Welcome. <laughs> Hello, Tim. Hi, David. Thank you so much. Good morning. Absolute (laughs) pleasure. How are you? How are you in your far fun climbs? I'm doing just fine. Yeah. Difficult situation for us all, but you know, I'm doing okay. How about you guys? Because you're where? You're where right now, John? I am in Barcelona in Spain um, with uh, with my partner here. Lockdown. Have been for six weeks, but spirits are high. I'm doing things that make me happy. That's all I can say, you know? We aim to make you happy here, don't we, Tim? Exactly, exactly. And talking of things that make you happy, Uh uh, we are going to uh, do what, which has become a tradition, I feel, Mm. is uh, is to read a scene. Now, this time, we have chosen a scene because, Mm -hmm. now, I don't know if you know this, but um, David and I uh, never watch anything that we're not in. So most of these episodes we haven't seen uh, because we're not in them. And I think that's no. that's quite a general rule. I think I don't think that's a, that's a surprise. Completely to fair. No. Nope. Um, yeah. David uh, suggested this particular scene, and having not seen it, I thought, well, if it's got young Ian in it and Roger, it's it's mm-hmm. it's going to be a bit of fun. It's going to um, be fun. I mean, fun. It's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fun. <laughs> will, Absolutely. Unless fun. I'm misreading this, uh, which I don't. I don't think I am. I think I'm. I think I've hit the nail on the head here. It's going to be lighthearted. It's going to be quite jovial. Um, so I thought what we would do is approach this scene. Uh, in in that vein, uh, unless again, True. unless I massively misread it, and I don't think I have with my years of experience. I think I've really, really uh, gone down the right route here. So we're going to approach this particular scene. It's a two hander uh, mm-hmm. between Young Ian and Roger, and then obviously the the, the stage directions, the the painting, the painting of the scene mm. will be done uh, by by myself, and I'll give you a, a few little tips. You're going to take the reins, Tim. Okay, I like that. I'll take I the reins. All right. <laughs> yeah, just to kind of guide you. Uh, having not seen the scene, I would. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming what I'm going to do is almost a carbon copy of exactly what what happened on the day. That's that's just, and, that, and that's not arrogance. I'm coming at this very cold, so I, I never read these scenes in advance. So I'm going to be relying a lot on your direction. Absolutely, I think that's that's fair enough. So, John, uh, mm-hmm. it's obviously your scene. Would you like to take your character? Would you like to mix it up a bit? Would you like to be Roger? Give us a Roger. Um, I'm, I think I'll stick with Ian. Because I want to give okay. a bit of bit of my mohawk too. Oh yes, Ooh, lovely. <laughs> that's what that's what I was hoping for. <laughs> right. So, uh, Mr. David Berry will give us his Roger. Okay. So oh, here we I'll go. This is right. um, scene forty-five from episode five hundred eight. Mm-hmm. Painting the picture here: North Carolina wilderness. Here we go. So it's on Young Ian, reverently placing his hatchet into the air. Basically, I see this as a bit of a comedy of errors. You're doing something like bit like kind of. Um, uh, sort of run for my wife kind of thing. Some people coming in one door, coming out of another door. It's very right. similar to that, I think. Yeah, um, definitely. As, as we'll see here. So young Ian is placing his hatchet into the earth, laying down his weapon with an air of ceremony, burying it uh, the Mohawk way. He has no need of it now. I pray for peace. Wow. And that's real. And that's real Mohawk. That is real Mohawk from the Mohawk Language Preservation Society. Yeah, really. You learned that. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. How much Mohawk did you have to? Did you just learn the bits that you have, or did you, or did you go into it a bit more? I've done a bit of work on the Mohawk language. Yeah, I wanted it to make sure that it came across 
as best as I possibly can, you know, mm-hmm. you know, this is yeah. obviously something, a culture that we want to celebrate in the show. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I got in contact with the, via some of the First Nation guys that came over in season four, they hooked me up with the Mohawk Language Preservation Society. So I have lots of online resources wow. when it comes to learning this language and understanding the basics of it. So I've done a bit of work, obviously, and um, and yeah, just it's just fun, isn't it? You know, to learn these yes. things. Do you speak any other languages, uh, John? Well, I'm here in Spain, obviously, so I've been trying to pick up my Spanish, and mm-hmm. and it's, it's it's been going pretty well. I mean, I'm I can ask. Uh, do you have uh, hand sanitizer now, <laughs> which is very important? <laughs> that. That's a must. That's an absolute <laughs> Who must. knew that would be uh, a key phrase to use from now on, but here we are. Fabulous. Now, jumping back into the scene, mm-hmm. uh, from afar, Roger approaches. Now, this is where I think it all gets a little bit, this is where the comedy comes in. This is where it kind of ramps up. People don't really know what's going on. I think, I think this, we can have a lot of fun with this. So he spots young okay. Ian I'm with and the strangeness of his actions. The burying of the hatchet makes him stop and quietly watch. The ceremony ends and young Ian approaches a small campfire where there is water boiling. So we're building up, we're building up. So like, oh, what's going to happen here? Young Ian places a dried plant inside the pot. The water hemlock. We recognise the white looking root. The same as those Claire was missing earlier. So there we go. We're drawing parallels. Roger can't tell what it is. The water hemlock might as well be mint, but he knows the meaning of burying the hatchet from his time with the mohawk. And that's where the phrase comes from. Burying the hatchet comes from literally burying your hatchet. Is that Literally. correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the symbol for not fighting anymore, should have read on. A symbol for peace, but also, <laughs> in this case, for giving up. He's seen enough, or he's not, or he hasn't seen enough, because this is where it all it all kicks off. Roger approaches, kicks over the pot with the tea, a uh, bit aggressive, but funny, and all the herbs go everywhere. Young Andy springs up, he's furious at the interruption. What are you doing? You don't care what I'm doing. Roger's face tells us that he knows exactly what Ian is intending. <laughs> Very quietly, almost inaudibly. I do. Why? Of all people, why would you stop me? I saw you looking down at the cliff. I ken what you were thinking. You have everything. A wife who loves you, a bairn, and still you didn't want to be with them. Roger shakes his head, but young Ian presses him further. When that rope was around your neck and you were dying, what did you see? What did you see in the darkness? What did you see? That took a bit of a dark turn there, Tim. I, I was going to say, do you know what? Um, having read that, I will, I will be honest, for the first time, it seemed a little darker than I was, than I because when it started, I thought, well, this is a bit of fun, knocking over this, knocking over that. It's a bit Benny Hill. Yeah. This is not where I was expecting the scene to go. Um, no, no, me neither. Right. I, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining it gets a bit lighter, because that's pretty heavy. I can't really see where else it can go. Right. But we'll, you know, we can, we can jump straight back in. So we're going we'll to find the, the follow on. We will find the comedy in this. We will, there'll, there'll definitely be some. Um, I've worked for many, many years uh, with some of the greatest comic talents, and I know when something funny is about to happen. That's just... He does. That's just he does. Mm. All right, I'm ready, Tim. Right, so here we go. So we now jump to 47. Uh, which is the follow-on back to that. So after a beat, Roger croaks out the words, his voice still raw from his extended period of silence. I saw my wife's face. Young Ian breaks down. I was assuming in laughter, because a lot of people have said that when they'd seen this scene, they had tears in their eyes, and I assume that was from laughter. <laughs> um, it may have been a miscalculation on my this part. This is going horribly, Tim. <laughs> this is not... It's not going what I thought. Okay, we'll plod on. I'm sure there's bits. Let's push through, young guys. Ian breaks, we'll push through. <laughs> we'll push through. So young Ian, he breaks down, falling to his knees in grief. Then there's no escape, even in death. Well, I guess is there must be a woman involved. What was her name? Young Ian glances at him, then down at the... Wampum bracelet, realising his pain has been discovered. It doesn't matter now. Is... Is she dead? No. But she has lost to me. I only wanted the pain to end. To be at peace. Roger nods. Young Ian clams up. This is as much as he will divulge right now. Who can say where your soul might go if you... Kill yourself. Roger closes his eyes. The thought is too dreadful to finish. You might be parted 
See, it, it's just going to always be comedy when I'm doing Roger. I'm trying so hard here. <laughs> I'm trying so hard to get this scene right. Hold on. You might be parted, parted forever, not only from her, but from all who love you. That's my best effort. I'm sorry. It's good. It's very good. Um, we're nearing the end of the scene. I'm still a little bit lost to see where where the gag is. I'm sure we can get something in. Uh, okay, we carry on. This sentiment aggravates young Ian. So what now? Go back home? Well, you're a fine one to talk. You buried your weapon, your voice, and now you dare to use it against me. You're right, I did. And I have to pick it up again and fight. Can you? Adonikin. Dig up your weapon and come home with me until you do. End on young Ian. And I'm assuming you fall over. Or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. Turns around, there's a banana on the ground, and he slips. Very comical. He slips. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's a whole big, almost like John Candy in the Great Outdoors kind of scenario. Yeah. That's, wow. um, big that's rousing canned laughter. Yeah. Yes. That's that's what I thought. Well, do you know what? Reading it uh, once again, I remember um, uh, a very funny, very funny story where I walked on set. I uh, was making a film. And one of the, the 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 runner came up to me and said, "Have you got the new pages?" And I said, uh, "No, I know the scene." They said, "Yes, but we've got some new ones." I went, "Don't worry, I know I know what I'm doing." And then they walked me onto set and they said, "How are you with tarantulas?" And I went, "That's hilarious." What? <laughs> and they said, "Oh, did you read the new sides?" And I said, N- "Oh, n- um, no." And they said, "Ah." come over here and then they led me to a table full of tarantulas of varying sizes <laughs> colors and they then started putting them on me and it was then wow. i realized tim when they say there are new sides read them and i feel i am much like that back that back in that situation again here where i should have read the scene first and maybe got a feel of it rather than kind of assume um a very moving scene though Absolutely. It is a very moving scene. Yeah, it is a wonderful scene. Yeah. This is like the the emotional climax of the of young Ian's whole return here, mm. you know. Um and I'm so happy the way it came out. You know, this was such a generous scene because you know, we were really allowed to go as much as we wanted, me and Richard at the time, at each other. Mm. Um yeah. and I can I can also remember being quite nervous about it because you know, as you know, it is the the emotional moment. But Stephen, the director for us on that block, you worked with Stephen on 07, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. He was just able to tell me exactly what I needed to hear right at that moment, which was just trust your instincts. You don't need to show us everything, but you know, trust yourself. And when when somebody can really pinpoint and say exactly what you needed to hear at that time for you to get the best performance, it was amazing. So yeah, I was really pleased with that scene. I'm, as much as it may not be the cheeriest, I am proud of it. <laughs> good, good. I mean, did you get much rehearsal for it? Or was it very much sort of, you get there, you're on the day, play it out between the two of you and find something? Yeah, there was a bit of stunt rehearsal beforehand, which always allows you to kind of feel the emotional intensity where you wanted to go. Um, and then on the day, um, we it was me and Richard, we'd been filming for a long time just as to doing all of our camping stuff and this scene was coming on later so we'd already kind of built up what we needed to know so that when we came in here we came in really just giving it giving it loudy <laughs> um <laughs> and pulling back or playing with it as much as we could on the day so yeah it was um it was a it was a fun day. <laughs> Tim, I, I don't want to f- make feel too embarrassed about what just happened here. You completely misread the situation. <laughs> yeah. But what I love, one of the things I love most about this scene is how it goes against all our expectations of mm. what we have come to love about young Ian and his return. It should be a real joyful thing. And I think, I mean, there's so many reasons I love this scene. And one, one of the things I love most about it, as I think we're getting into, is how it forces us to confront these issues of mental health through young Ian. It's like we're placing two opposites next to each other. There's this sort of wonderful bait and switch where we all think that Roger is on this path towards suicide, but then to our surprise, it turns out to be Ian, a character who I think we've typically come to associate you know, with good humor, optimism, and youth. I mean, 
John, the the smile you give at the end of uh, season four after running the gauntlet, I think has to be up there as one of the um, most joyful moments in Outlander history. And that was them just telling me we have one more take left and that's it, you can go. (laughs) What's even more interesting to me is that the character himself, Ian, is is played by you. You know, it doesn't take much for John Bell to crack a smile and the meeting of these two opposites, you know, the great depression that young Ian has and joyful exuberance, it's so confronting and surprising. And I think that's exactly the point. You know, mental health is, is complex. It's one of the biggest pitfalls of suicide prevention. It's how unexpected it can seem, especially in someone so full of life or um, the person with the biggest smile on Outlander. So I'm wondering, John, what are your thoughts here? Did it surprise you that Ian was having these dark episodes? Yeah, as you were talking about, you know, young Ian has been seen constantly as this sort of I would say someone that just exudes joy, you know, to to everyone. Um, And here he is in such a broken place. Now, I think I was talking to my mum about this last night, actually, and we were talking about significant emotional events, you know, and these being the sort of things that can change people or affect people forever. And Ian has gone through so much in his short period of being on the show in his life um, that it's, it's incredible that he's actually been able to keep this strong for so mm-hmm. long. Um, so obviously whatever happened with the Mohawk, we've not gone into it yet. I'm sure we will eventually learn about this, but that has obviously affected him in such a way that he, that he, he is no longer able to find happiness. And it's mm-hmm. only through Roger does he actually begin to see a bit of light, a bit of hope you know, um, which is which is kind of ironic in a way because there's there's Roger being very in his head, also in the same position, but these two men actually finding each other and seeing each other helps them both. And I just, yeah, as you say, I, I love how beautiful yeah. that is. I think that's one of the really cool things about the scene is that we just, we don't really understand, you mm. know, mental health. It's very complex. It's something that we really, really can't get inside. And um, But I would has it to think that one of the clues in the script is um one be one of heartbreak it's mm. something i can very much relate to and certainly any any time i've felt down or ever had any experience with like that kind of thing were linked to the loss of someone i love either through circumstance or death i remember an acting teacher of mine once said you can't become an actor until you've earned your first paycheck you've paid your first rent and you've had your heart broken and this this scene seems to me to be a lot about heartbreak and those kind of things. And I'm and I mean, you've been acting since a very young age. And when did you, I'm wondering when did you earn your first paycheck, pay your first rent, and have you, have you ever had your heart broken? <laughs> well, I um I earned my first paycheck when I was eight years old, which is pretty surreal to think. But yeah, um, uh, that was do uh, I won a competition to win a part in Doctor Who. Um, competition. Yeah, I, competition. It was um, it was a Blue Peter competition. So I don't know if you know that, David, but you know what I'm talking about, Tim. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about. So I have my Blue Peter badge. So this is like a children's television show, um, and they often partner with Doctor Who. It's on the BBC, still going. Um, and this year I was at the right age to audition for this amazing competition, which was to win a part actually in Doctor Who for any up and coming sort of young talents or whatever so I'd entered it didn't think anything of it actually probably was more pessimistic you know this will probably go to somebody that knows somebody but actually no it turns out they were genuinely looking for somebody and went down got to the next stage went down and auditioned with with funnily enough with Annette Badland she was part of the workshop (laughs) yeah (laughs) Because she played one of the Slovene, which was these monsters in, in Doctor yeah. Who. So she was there. And... Win a competition too. Is this how all casting is done on Doctor Who? Win a competition. <laughs> Must be. Uh, and, um, and Andy Pryor was there as well. So that was a really um, amazing experience. And then, then I ended up winning the competition. And Russell T. Davies was the one who called me to tell me that I got the part. And it's so funny because... Uh, only recently have I been up and actually seen Andy Pryor and, and, and talked to these guys again so many years later. Um, and, you know, they were, the, they were part of the reason why I'm, I'm still here. So it's always lovely to do that. So, yeah, that was, that was my first paycheck. 
um, mm-hmm. paid my first rent when I was like 17. Pretty, pretty normal. Wow, wow not really. I, it took me a long time. Good this yeah, it's good in this yeah. day and age. Goodness me. <laughs> so you were really happy um, to get out from under your parents then? Um, well, do you know what? It's not that I wasn't happy to get under. I'm sure I was always wanting a bit more independence, but that's just kind of normal teenage things. But my parents had been a part of my career the whole way through, you know? When I, when I was eight, you know, we had to have chaperones and tutors with you on set, obviously. And mm-hmm. my mom's a teacher, so she could have been my tutor. So that's what she did. And my dad would take time off work to be my chaperone. So we were really a unit. And we worked together, um, which meant that in this crazy up and down, you know, world, which can be really difficult to navigate as an adult, never mind as a child, when you're not fully understanding the the highs and lows of it all, you know? When I would go on set and I was like 10 years old, I, it, it was like adrenaline constantly. I loved it. I loved being a part of it. And then you go back to school or you go back to your normal life and it'd be such a dip. And you wouldn't, you know, it's addictive and you, you wouldn't understand it. You wouldn't be able to kind of mm-hmm. wrap your head around it. So that's why I was so lucky to have my parents who kept me real, kept me grounded. Um, and essentially gave up their careers for you. Well, yes. Yes and no. I mean, they would take time off. So, like, we went to New Zealand to film The Hobbit, and Mm. that was, like, a year of our lives. So they took time off to do that. But, I mean, when are you going to get the opportunity to go out and live in New Zealand and make a film like that? My dad's a huge Lord of the Rings fan, so he was like, absolutely, you know. I can, you know, he's a bit of a geek, so, uh, like me, um, I get that from him. Um, And I think it was uh, when I went in for the audition for The Hobbit and Peter Jackson was there, and he was asking me whether he could bring in his Gollum statuette to get signed. And I'm like, come on, Dad. Stop. Dad will always embarrass you, John. Absolutely. I love it. Um, because I was going out there for a year. So they also needed to check that my parents were normal, sane people too, if they're going to be around a lot. Luckily, they are. Um, and, and yeah, so that's been like my career is kind of unique up until this point because I've always had these people nothing to do with the industry but only to do for my happiness you know which has been pretty amazing so how have you had time to have your uh heart broken and all and all that or have you i mean you know i i have been pretty lucky you know i have people that i can talk to um i mean the only thing i can think of is like you know when i was 17 you know as everyone my grand passed away but that was a time where i was surrounded by family you know, and I was surrounded by people I could talk to, which is why it's so heartbreaking at the moment, because you can't be there for people and you, you know, you can't have these conversations in person. So I was able to, you know, be able to understand what was going, what was going on. So that's something I draw on. But I, I also, you know, I also just think, you know, a lot of things can make you sad. You just need to figure out what that emotion is and, and, and deliver it when, when the time comes, you know? Dead pets or something? Oh, that Dead you draw upon, Tim? Your answer? <laughs> <laughs> On that front, uh, that the, down, the Downey note. household is never, uh, is never particularly pet-friendly. I think I had a fish uh, <laughs> once that I didn't even realise you had to feed. And so I wow. found it floating on the surface one morning and was quite unperturbed by it. <laughs> but yeah right i uh, had a similar thing when i was a kid i, I had a fish and I, it didn't take me very long for me to kill it either i had i had the, i had this idea that the fish needed food right and then fish do need yeah. food and, and parents kept the fish food right next to the fish bowl and um i think just me i was like oh fish are hungry i'm the fish are, always want fish food so i kept filling the fish bowl with fish food and then um the fish overate and died and i remember waking up in that morning it was about probably about three so one of my earliest memories wow we're going deep here and i just i saw that the fish had died and it was because of something i did because i overfed the fish and i couldn't understand how you could die from overfeeding but there you go so my good intentions killed a oh, gold bless you. I don't think I've never really recovered from that trauma I can see. <laughs> still still reliving it. Yeah. And see, when I go to dark, dark places, I really am thinking of that, that goldfish. But there's a litany of dead pets that followed me after that, much like Tim. Um, <laughs> there's a dead pet cemetery around his house. Yeah. There was a dead hamster. There was a dead rabbit. And oh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't get into it. It's just very macabre. 
Um, not like this. <laughs> we should get back to this scene, right? <laughs> There's no refuge here. But aside from heartbreak, um, one of the things that Look, there's never a good reason why someone might kill themselves. I don't think we can ever really justify that. But it seems to me another reason that something that's playing upon young Ian here is this issue of change in identity. And um, it's Ian has undergone a huge change from from being a, a boy in Scotland to becoming a Cherokee warrior. And, and really just having no one to talk to about it. Exactly. You know, yeah. that understands what he's gone through. Yeah. And he seems to be... a if I'm right here, um, really in conflict with who he is. I'm presuming the love that he had to give up was over this issue of his identity. You know, Ian, Ian wasn't a Cherokee, therefore he wasn't allowed to be with the woman he loved. And because of this, Ian maybe comes to hate his own identity. You know, maybe if he'd been Cherokee, then he would have would be in this pain. And I, I'm wondering what you think of this issue of identity here and of, of being in conflict with your own sense of who you are and how do you relate to Ian's pain in this scene. Yeah, I mean, I guess, well, Ian's pain here is obviously something that has been built up for quite a long time, you know. And I think, you know, we're going through a period now where we are stuck inside and, and we're not able to fully be ourselves. So I can, I can understand his almost inner monologue, his inner saboteur affecting him in a way because I'm having to physically fight that too, you know. Um, but I think it, yeah, I think the reason why he, he just comes so serious is because he, he has no one to talk to about it. Um, and any, and it's that feeling of being so alone. So it's hard to relate to that because I have always had people around, you know, but I know that's not the case for everybody. Um, and certainly isn't the case for young Ian. So yeah, that's, um, it's a tough so one, who, but it's. In your times of strife, who do you turn to on set or, you know, who's that person for you? Yeah, I mean, well, it's, 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 it is my mom, absolutely. You know, I will go to my mom and I will talk to her about anything. And she's one of those people that you just make, somebody makes it clear to you, you know. Um, but on set, I mean, I mean, if you guys are around, absolutely, I'll be coming to you, I'll be coming to you guys. I don't think you've ever come to me, John. <laughs> we don't even know what scene you're doing. <laughs> this, this is it. And unless you're bringing like a tea or a cake, I'm, yeah. I'm, I've checked out already. And you're already, yeah, you don't, give a, you don't care. Fair enough. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, as I spoke about earlier, Stephen was a huge help. He was somebody that really was able to key into what I was feeling and, and, and really help me get there. Um, and also, I guess it's also your, your, your fellow actor, you know, here it was with Richard, um, who absolutely killed this episode. I mean, really in awe of him, um, especially in this episode. And because of that, you know, you, you felt that you were getting a good volley with him. You were getting a good rapport. So he was somebody that I really did go to and he was always really generous and just making sure, you know, giving me a wee wink. That was good. That was good. You know, just to kind of keep your own voices inside your head affecting you too much, you know? I suppose that's the problem as well, is when you get a scene like this, it's very easy to become very isolated because it is a tricky thing to do. It's not an outward thing where you get an immediate response. It's such an inward working and you're because you're peering into that microscope as to what's going on inside someone. It can kind of make you quite insular. You can't kind of take yourself away. You kind of physically move away from a group to kind of find that mm -hmm. placement um, and I think that's, yeah, that's, that could be very, very tricky. And also, yeah, so you need that camaraderie just to kind of mm -hmm. just keep you, be it a director or a fellow actor, just to keep you on that uh, sort of straight and narrow, as it is a performance as well at the end of the day, and you need to convey it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I think that really relates back again to these the issues of mental health. This scene brings up, you know, it's like it demonstrates the importance of talking about our problems or having someone to talk to and just, just asking someone if they're okay can really make a huge difference because, you never know what someone's going through, even if they'd appear to have everything in order. Um, and I think it's beautiful that Roger is that person because in many ways he is an, isn't the perfect person for Ian to talk to. It's his, uh, Ian's frustration with Roger that in turn helps um, him come to a better understanding about love and loss. Yeah, and I think it's also, you know, at the end of the scene, you know, there's, a, there's just that little bit of hope, which I think is something we're all needing at the moment, you know, mm -hmm. um, for Roger to kind of, without saying it but basically bad times will end you know this is not going to last forever you need to keep fighting and sometimes you just need to hear that you know mm. and i think that's it. in that moment yes it's the drama of outlander and it's the huge thing but 
what it really comes down to is just somebody telling you the thing that you wanted to hear or you needed to hear at that at that right moment. Because we all often look to young Ian to be that character, you know, to give yeah, us the hope. Yeah, true. I think yeah. of all the characters, young Ian is is one of the characters, like you said earlier, who, who we observe undergoing the most physical and psychological change. I mean, he's constantly subjected to these very big life-changing traumas in like in season three like you were captured and raped by Gaius. yeah all Kidnapped. of that yeah and but yeah. through it all you, he seems to maintain this sense of optimism and, and hope and like you said right now the world is in the midst of a pandemic and I, i'm wondering in times of adversity you know whether they're on set or or in lockdown how do you how do you cope um are you able to maintain a sense of optimism yourself like young ian um, I try to. I try my best to. Absolutely. I mean, I think the whole thing is you've just got to find that thing that you've got, you've got to do every day that just makes you happy, right? That little bit of self-care, whatever it is. I recently got, um, I think I'd downloaded something. It was like 105 things to do in quarantine that aren't Netflix, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so I've been working my way through that, whether it's make a plan or reach out to people and tell them that you're grateful for them or whatever it is for that day, you know? Um, and that's been really helping, actually. Be creative, do something creative, something like that. Practice best where did, Spanish. Uh, that's where did Out come on that 105? Where we are? Uh, maybe we're oh, you were the, you were the You were the title. Yeah, it was 100. Yeah, yeah it was. And then underneath, Outcasts. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> but it is extraordinary, the parallels, in the sense that you have uh, your character is isolated within a community where you don't speak the language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to kind of l- learn to kind of find your place within a community whose language is not your native language, mm-hmm. which I think is very fascinating. Which is kind of where you are as a person, anyway. Is mm-hmm. you are in a, and, and you're isolated to, to another extent in the fact that what is going on is actually happening as well. So the parallels are actually quite, you know, it's art imitating life in that yeah. in that respect, which is again quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. As my life does not, I haven't become governor of New York. Contrary to popular belief, <laughs> not the case. I do ride around on a horse and wear red a lot. I feel it goes in my eyes. Um, but uh, but that's where the parallels end. I probably should start wearing a wig. If the lockdown hairdo is anything to go by, my bouffant, as I'm sure a it's lot of people fabulous. are suffering at the moment, <laughs> it's becoming grandma. I, my hair goes from it's normal, it's normal, it's normal. Now I'm your grandma. And it's got that kind of slightly bouffony. I could be a mobster in the fifties. That kind of slightly got a little bounce to it. Yeah, there is a lot. Of, there's too much bounce, John. <laughs> there's just too much bounce. And what the bounce does is it creates areas where you're going, "What is that? I've never seen that before." <laughs> These are my daily struggles. Yeah, um, I can I can see know, it's been affecting you quite it, severely. It's, it's 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 a real thing. It's a real thing because you know we're suddenly going to come out of this, and one of the thing is we're probably all going to go outside and go, "Who who is that?" Massive beard, strange hair. St- it's going to be very odd. I mean, you're never going to get an appointment in a hairdresser for months. Yeah, well, the thing that's been Just giving a me a bit of bit of laughs recently has been seeing everybody shaving their heads in young Ian style. I mean, that's great. I'm loving uh, this. I'm seeing all these kids get sent their photos. Yeah, trends better. Like my 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 son asked for the mo uh, the mohawk, the the young Ian look today. It's like, yeah. oh, that's so sweet, you know. <laughs> Um, and that's this is what, this is what happens in isolation. Yeah, this is exactly. What happens in isolation? It's I should be, maybe I should be getting shaving myself, my mohawk again. I don't know. I, quite, I thought I quite suit, suited it. I don't think you should take it off the table. I yeah. I think it should be move it up that list of one hundred and five. One hundred and five. Okay. Put it in brackets. You know, you can bypass yeah. it, but I will always come back to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Did Young Ian make that decision to cut his hair because he wanted to become more mohawk, or was it what was it about? I would imagine so, yeah. I imagine it's that sort of, when you go somewhere new, you're sort of trying to join that culture, right? Amalgamate into that culture. So that's why he gets these tattoos as well, which were such a huge part of the change of his identity, the shaving of the head. So it's all very, you know, ceremonial and uh, culturally significant to to the Mohawks. So, yeah, I mean, it's um, it's great because it's a character as well that has always sort of been throughout there's a lot of there's a lot of bastards in outlander you know so uh to have ian there (laughs) yeah to have ian be there to be that sense of um kind of right and wrong 
It's always been a joy of playing him. Um, sometimes it's not the most exciting. Sometimes you want to be the arsehole or the bastard, but play, being Ian is fun. Um, and certainly getting to explore the Mohawk culture has been such a benefit to this too. Such an amazing experience. Tim, you can probably speak to that. What's it like being an arsehole and a bastard on Outland? <laughs> it's, it's, it's fabulous. It's, it's fabulous. The door's open. Is uh, is all I can say to that. It's very uh, very exciting. I'm going to give you a little a little a little just a really dull fact. But did you know? Just talking about the la- the Mohawk language. But did you know? And I haven't mm. just googled this. This is something I actually did know. Okay, is that the American Secret Service during the Second World War used to send their transmissions in? I think it was either Mohawk or Apache, I think because Apache. they were almost impossible to code break. The wind talkers, because they were right? a language that the Germans had never come across. Oh, really? So they didn't oh. understand the vowel right. syntax. They, they couldn't work out how these words were words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's how the Americans... Trend. What about that? <laughs> it's brilliant. definitely not dull because it was good enough for a movie with Nicolas Cage, Tim. Is it? <laughs> come on. Am I the only one who has who's seen this movie? Wind talkers. Well, well, yeah, you are literally, I think, the only person who's yeah. seen this seeing this movie look there's a lot of nick cage movies out there and i one day i will slowly make my way through all of them but <laughs> that, that definitely is one of them um look now that we're talking about mohawk and i want to circle back around again to this issue of identity because i think like it's something that is really sort of on the forefront on on ian's mind like who is he and um mm. i wanted to relate it back to what it means to be an actor i think as actors we're often forced into cultivating very separate public and private personas i'm speaking for myself i think uh, one of the main reasons i fell into to acting was because i've never been entirely comfortable with who i am i express myself much better through a mask you know by putting on a character it just gives me sort of a an excuse to um express my true thoughts and feelings and, and and one of the things my family and friends really hate about me is that when i i'm doing interviews or even this podcast for example i seem to slip into this persona that isn't really quite me you know it's not the real me and I have to say it's led to many sort of mental health issues in my life Uh, I'm wondering if you John think about public and private persona as much as I do how is the John Bell we see on screen any different from the John Bell who's you know buying groceries at Tesco or or whatever yeah I mean of course there's going to be a difference you know there's a a performative aspect to to being an actor and to being that person but I try to keep myself as real as I possibly can I mean it's and it and it's back and it's back to that as well it's back to being able to have somebody that you trust to be able to go was that me there or was that was that me being tense or was that me you know relaxed um and I've been trying to you know get a bit more relaxed with it with it all so yeah, I mean yeah, it's it it is a difficult thing. I can understand completely where you're coming from, David, about it being hard to to keep reality uh, and keep you when you're when you're in this life and you're doing this business. So yeah, I mean, just have somebody you can try and talk to. I guess that's why you had that with your parents. Your, your mom was keeping you honest, was she, or your your parents? Yeah, they, they've been there yeah. from the day one. Um, I think she was just very good at. I, I, you know, keeping it real, but in that way, in that sense that you can get caught up in the the glitz and the glamour of it all and the sort of very addictive qualities to it. But my mum was just very much someone that was so separate from that world, you know, um, never actually was a, never part of the industry. Um, so was always very, very aware of, um, I think I think the big thing was a lot of people would come up to her on set um, and expect her to be this kind of very crazy stage mum, pushy personality, and she's the complete opposite. So to have that influence in my life has served me so well. In fact, it served everybody well because she would often become the mum on set and everybody would go to her for advice. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've had her, um, I've caught her, it's, well, not caught her, but she's given folk into trouble, you know, before on set. And because she's my mum, she was basically yeah. untouchable, so she could get away with it, you know? Um, so I love that about her. And um, What kinds of things and, is she saying here? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can say. <laughs> oh, please, um, there was, um, yeah, there was a, a very... Um, 
it was a, a, a big a big film that I did and and for you know some sometimes you know we can get caught up in the hierarchy of a film six everybody's got where they are and mm-hmm. and that and so my mom was always thought that's this kind of is bullshit you know we're all a team here that was one of the big things she taught me that you know the person that is um what every single job on a film set is important um and you should never be thinking because you're the actor blah 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 that you are above anybody else without any without if you you miss one part the whole machine doesn't work um so when she saw stuff like that injustices going on people maybe not being given seats or whatever she would call it out now it's not my position to do that um because you know we're working on what we're doing call out stuff when you can absolutely but she yeah she just taught me to keep it real and i and i appreciate her 100 percent for that has that carried on with you in your life do you, are you calling people out on set john <laughs> no i i'm Never. usually the one that's getting called out let's be real <laughs> i've had a few dirty looks thrown at me for katrina behave <laughs> haven't we all though <laughs> Well, yeah, the apple never falls far from the tree. Yeah. <laughs> I feel, I feel. I was going to yeah. say, no, my mother is very similar. My mother is um, uh, of a very similar cast in that sense, is yeah. that she's very sort of blunt about things. But a great, but what she has given me is a, is a work ethic. She was the hardest working woman I've ever met mm. in my entire life, hardest working person I've ever met in my entire life. And it's interesting how that kind of imbues within, you kind of, I've spent a lot of my life kind of repelling certain elements of my parents kind of thinking oh god i'm not like that no i will not be like that i will not be that and then you find as you get older actually those things you repel are actually quite uh, almost virtues kind of think no the work ethic of just kind of get on with it my mother for instance when i said i wanted to be an actor said well why don't you why don't we just ring kenneth branner mother you can't no you mother you cannot ring kenneth branner i'm sure i can no no honestly i you really shouldn't i'm doing it don't ring (laughs) And she did. She ended up, she rang his theatre company and said, my son wants to be an actor and he wants to do work experience uh, with you at your theatre company. They were doing Hamlet at the Barbican. Uh He's, you know, 14 or something. Uh, He'd like to come and do work experience uh, with you. How would would that be? And I didn't hear anything. A letter arrived from Kenneth Branagh saying, yes, we'd love to have him. We would love to have him come. And what signed, signed Kenneth Kenneth Branagh. And I think it's, it's those certain elements that, parents give you especially when they don't really know what the business is and we kind of know that there's like well you can't say that to that person because of what you're saying is the hierarchy yeah mm-hmm. whereas mums you know mums especially kind of think oh that's bullshit bullshit exactly let's, let's let's go and do this nope it's very simple this happens and this happens i don't understand what you're talking about let's just try it and sure enough you know more often than not it's actually a really good thing because people respond to it people actually quite like Oh, okay. Well, I respect the fact that you've called me up and asked for this, or I respect the fact that you've called me out on set. You know, it's those those elements that I yeah, yeah, I'm fascinated. Oh, that's so funny, Tim. I'm glad we've both got that kind of. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, well, I think what we've all got in common is, is is mothers, you know, that who all adore us. I think if we didn't have that, we'd probably be different people. Um, one thing you can always count on if you're lucky that your mother's going to believe in you. I think um, it was I was a stage just before um, auditioning for drama school. Where I wasn't even going to be an actor, I'd I'd sort of given it up. I was doing this other career path, and um, it was my mum who actually filled out the application for me and sent it in because I had already told her I didn't really want to do it. And she said, "No, you've got a talent, and you should pursue it." And I did. And I think had she not done that, I you know I probably would have been doing something else now. But she did not enter me in a competition, and she did not ring Kenneth Brenner. Um, I still had to. <laughs> <laughs> do that audition and get it. <laughs> Parents uh, and people, someone you can um, rely on and to talk to through hard times is definitely something that um, I can relate to too because my, uh, definitely my mum has always been there through the, um, through you know, really tough times. If, um, if ever I've had something go wrong in my life, the first person that I think of calling is mum. Um, she's often always the last person I call at the best of times though, but when something is wrong, um, uh, I'm definitely calling my mum. <laughs> I think I would have, I would have, I would have to say the same thing. It's, 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 uh, it's my mother, but uh, it, the same, the same, same, same for me, as you were saying is that she probably is the last person within that group. She will give the best advice. And be the most straightforward. It's the most practical advice. I think I, I think one is so easy to overcomplicate things. 
and kind of kind of think oh, what about this and think of all these other aspects when actually the simplest solution is often the best of uh, and that's what the advice my mother always gives we'll just kind of go we'll just we'll either just do it or don't do it yeah well i go and tell them or don't tell them you know there is kind of like very yoda-esque i've just realized that she's sounding <laughs> do or not do that is the way although it doesn't look like it she's a very beautiful lady she doesn't look anything like yoda but um i think it's definitely that that aspect of that um yeah which is which is vital and wonderfully my my wife ha- has a very similar attitude to things of go we'll just go and do it um don't sit and procrastinate you can sit and procrastinate forever and just talk about it and plan things do that forever mm. go try it do it do it now learn on the thing learn while you're doing it you'll 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 work it out you know it's fine and i think that's that's invaluable especially in this times of great change i think our natural actor instinct of it's constant change we are all in a world of constant change as actors because no matter what job you have it will end and you know that instinctively it's not as if you're going to work in a big company that will be there for 150 years and you probably your place within it um, as long as you work hard you could work as you could be the hardest working person in the world but as an actor the job will end mm-hmm. it's it's that aspect so our adaptation to change could well be more attuned because it's what we've had to do anyway mm-hmm. it's kind of in our dna is that you will reach the end and it will change and after that end it's un it's uncertain you don't know when the next job is you don't know when that will appear you have to make provisions thereof there are so many aspects to an actor's life that is kind of not perfectly suited to a pandemic. I don't want to say that because that sounds odd. Yes. Uh, because, you know, we haven't all been like, every actor's not going, oh, the pandemic I've always been waiting for. But I think... Wrong, the- wrong. I have had that thought, Tim. <laughs> I have thought, I am so well primed for this. A life of uncertainty, not knowing what the day brings, not knowing what to do with my days. Um, having to think of 105 things to do other than watch Netflix. I was like, this, the world is just kind of my life in, 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 in writ large right now. I mean, not to diminish what people are going through. I, I don't mean to be flippant about that. Um, I, certainly look, people are going through some really tough times right now for the people who are kind of in this privileged position that we are, that the, the worst that we have to worry about is kind of waiting it out. Um, th- that's not without its challenges too. And I think that, um, as actors, we, like you said, we don't really know what our next job is going to be. A lot of the time, uh, an actor's life is spent waiting rather than working. Yeah, and you kind of, you have to accept that, you know. You have to accept yeah. that this is going to be such a major part of what you do. Um, but hopefully that this will end. Just kind of like you've got to accept now what we can't do is for the greater good, but it will end and... Yeah, we, we'll we go somewhere. through with a blind hope that at the end, you know, there's going to be that job. <laughs> there's going to be this, that role. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I guess out of that and then that waiting. Yeah, when I finish the job and I go and order some Vivian Westwood, that is blind hope that I will have another job <laughs> to pay the rent. Yes, <laughs> I find it particularly interesting as it relates to your own life as someone who, like, who began as a child actor, having already experienced so much in your life do you feel like you have more growing to do do you have more lessons to learn do you have more ambitions and where your career is going to go i mean you've already achieved so much what are your ambitions moving forward oh it's a yeah it's a good question i mean when you were doing it as a kid you weren't you weren't doing it because of your i don't know you were ambitious but that wasn't some driving factor you were doing it because it's it was fun you know and it was something you really enjoyed. So I think that's always what I've tried to keep doing and keep going. And it's just, if I'm having fun and continuing to do what I do, then that's where I'm at. That's where I'm great. But it doesn't mean that I haven't had really doubtful moments in my career as well. You know, it looks like I've done this whole big thing and I've worked from eight till now. But when I finished The Hobbit, I had a period of time where I, I didn't work at all for about two years. Uh, all the additions weren't going anywhere. I was feeling like I was stuck in this very weird stage where you're trying to cross from being a child actor to an adult actor. Um, you're too old for the young roles. You're too young for the old roles. People don't necessarily treat you as seriously. And I, and I was, I was really doubtful. It was really dark for a point. Um, and I ended up signing up to university getting my student accommodation. I was going to give up acting. I was going to do it all. And that's when Outlander Audition came through. 
And I auditioned for that and ended up getting that, which put me on a bit of more of a positive streak again. So, yeah, that's something, you know, you, you have to deal with. But Your headshot when we do the read-through always comes up and it's got this headshot of John Bell. I know. His glorious golden hair. He <laughs> looks very angelic. And, it, and it's like if, if you gave that headshot to me right now and said that this was you and you're auditioning for a part and then you came in, I would be very angry at, as a casting director. This is not you. You can't come in and audition. You have grown through this series. It's been, what, uh, what three years you've been on the show, right? Three, um, four years, yeah. Three, four years. And, and you've, you've changed as, as an actor and as, as a man. How, how has the, the show changed you and what have you learned from it? Yeah, I mean, that was the big thing I was talking about, that kind of change between child to adult actor. This is the benefit of doing Outlander because he really has gone from boy to man. Um, and to be able to not only have the joy of playing that, but for it to also be permanently a part of a piece of art that I can go back and watch whenever I want is incredible. I think it's, you know, part of the joy of, of, of film and what we do. I mean, I haven't actually done a lot of stage, but stage seems to be this sort of magical moment where it happens and then it will never happen again quite the same way. Whereas film is now permanently there for, 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 the, rest of the, for the rest of your life. So it's part of the reason why I love it so much because it has captured me at different times in such a unique way. Yeah. I don't know about you, Tim, but I, I look back on my work from like 10 years ago and I just cringe. I can't. <laughs> I think there'll be, I, I agree, but I also think that there'll be a moment, give it about another 40 years and you will look back and you will see yourself and you'll go, God, God, I was, I was actually really good. Or, <laughs> oh, God, I was actually pretty good looking. Didn't realize it at the time, but. Goodness me, I haven't seen that waistline since 2030. You know, that, kind of, that kind of thing. I think it will then start to have a different you know, view to it. Um, as I always think, it's always worthwhile being proud of kind of every step because every step has moved you on to the next step that you are on. And it kind of that it was that trajectory that's kind of taken you. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are certain things. I remember doing a, an episode of a show which was a guess your own, guess the ending where it was uh, Terry Wogan. I don't know if you uh, know Terry Wogan, mm -hmm. David. Uh, very very famous sort of talk show host. Irish talk show host, Terry Wogan. Okay. Brilliant. He was brilliant. Not that, not that impression. He was brilliant. And he would present this show. And I had to have an affair with a teacher. And I must have been 17 at the time. <laughs> and I was having an affair with a woman who was in her late 30s. And I thought I was very wow. intense. I thought, yes, I'm an intense actor. What an intense performer I am doing doing this, and then I remember. And then basically, it was it was like a phone in where the where people at home had to ring in and say, "Does he have the affair?" And go, oh, there was me on a train station holding flowers in the rain. Yes, Aww. that's that's it. Do I get on the train and leave, or do I stay and the affair continues? Uh, quick game, quick game for you. What do you think the great British public chose. Do I get on the train and leave or do I stay and have the affair? What do you oh, think they chose? Stay and have the, the affair, no? I mean, that's what I'd vote for, but I'm um, pretty sure that they voted for you to get in that train, Tim. John, you're absolutely spot on. The great British public voted wow. uh, that I have the affair. What uh, a which was fabulous. And then the wow. last shot was me on like the late show being interviewed for my latest book, uh, which there was a much older man, was my tale of having an affair with a much older woman. Fabulous. Fabulous. I don't know how we got around to that, but no, yes. How fantastic. And so <laughs> I remember watching it about two years after that came out, I went, this is, oh my, oh my God, this is embarrassing. I'm, I'm surprised more people didn't speak up at the time and go, this is terrible. And now I look back on it and go, hey, God, look at my lovely hair. <laughs> what lovely hair he had. Look how, that's young, that's look how young he is. Look what he's doing. So there's a real warmth now that I have for that younger version that has kind of, that was the, the, the Rosetta stone that has then kind of translated out into what, what you now, what you mm. now become or what you now present. So I think it's all, you know, I, guess, I now I look guess, back. I guess what kind of intrigues me though is when would, when was that made Tim? Do you, do you know roughly? 
1998. Right, okay. So Something like that. The whole like maybe. Social, social media and stuff like that hadn't been a oh, huge... wasn't even... Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't even thought about. Which is something I think is really interesting when we are as actors now is that we're talking about the online presence in this sort of, which is an amazing tool, but it also means that you read a lot of comments about your performances, which you probably didn't need. You never did back, you know, you, your yeah. own opinion and the opinion of the people you worked with are the ones that counted. And now we, we read a lot. And, mm. and that's a big thing that I, I worry about with my mental health is that I try to, I remember what I worked with an actress once and she told me that she lives in this bubble and this bubble is a bubble of positivity and that everything she reads is something nice. And no matter what she lives here. And I kind of liked it in a way. Um, and so now, but cause I know that when you are a person like an actor who is very aware and wears their emotions on their sleeve, you know, is upfront comments that are pretty negative and that can hurt you. Um, so it's something that I've kind of been working on recently is just does, first of all, does this opinion matter to me? You know? Um, and if it does, is it worth listening to? Is it critique? You know? Um, or is it an opinion that I can just go? Phew. And I think that's something that I'm working on and learning on personally for me that has been an issue i don't know how you guys have felt about that i think one of the best things i heard with regard to criticism is don't take criticism from people you wouldn't take advice from that relates a lot to the the, the punters out there just giving their own opinions because everyone's got an opinion and mm. it's the people that you really need to listen to that you need to understand where to take criticism from and how to interpret that criticism because i i think that a very important part of being an artist is I don't believe that you can just live in a bubble. I think you have to be responsive and sensitive to the world. Otherwise, you're just kind of in an echo chamber and, and performing to yourself and becomes very indulgent. I think you have to be open to other people's opinions and be receptive to criticism. But the way that you receive that criticism um, is, is really important. Drama school taught me a lot about that. And uh, I, I don't know what it would be like when I'm thinking back for you, John, going through as a kid and doing all your tough lessons, learning them as a kid, getting those critiques at a very like impressionable age and having to deal with people telling you what they thought of you and your artistry as you were in fact trying to discover it on your own. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, it makes me think of a story that I, that I often tell, which is when I was, after I'd filmed the Doctor Who I'd had a couple of auditions before that where everything was going great. I was getting auditions. I was getting auditions. I was winning the auditions, blah, blah, blah. And my parents were like, if he's going to continue doing this, he needs to learn quickly the harsh reality of what this career is going to be, which is a whole lot of rejection and a whole lot of critique. So I'm not the greatest singer or dancer. So my parents decided to take me down to audition for Mary Poppins on the West End, right. knowing full well that I was nowhere, I was not going to get the part. I couldn't sing, you know, and went down, did the open edition. They went, cool, thank you so much. See you later. Left. That was a trip from Glasgow all the way to London. My parents took me for this. And wow. I kind of turned to them and went, all right, cool. When, when, when am I going to hear back? You know, my dad's like, oh, you, you did, you know, you're, you didn't get it. And I just start bawling, start crying my eyes out. Cause this is like, you know, nine years old, not fully understanding everything. I think they hate me, blah, blah, blah. My, my dad's like, look, this is the, you know, kind of tough love, you know? This is this is your career. Are you? Are, this is what you are choosing to do. You don't have to. You can do something else. We can go back to what it was normally. Do you still want to do it? And through the tears, I said yes, you know? So that was a lesson I was taught very early on. That doesn't mean that it's always been easy to lose jobs or not quite get there but certainly was a great lesson to learn yeah i think dealing I, with rejection is definitely harsh, one of yeah. the things that um that we as actors is one of the biggest mental health challenges for us uh, tim do you remember what your first rejection experience of rejection was do you know what no i don't i actually don't remember uh because there's been a lot of it to be perfectly uh <laughs> perfectly frank so they all kind of meld into one but i remember i don't know what i do remember is i remember this the sea change between it being personal feeling personal 
I'm feeling this, this is, it's because I can't do it or I can't do this and I can't do that. But I remember the sea change where I just kind of went, okay. And I, I, and that was the biggest growth period I think I've ever had at any point in this career was realizing that it kind of doesn't matter. It isn't about, it isn't about you. It's about how you look or how you fit in, how you might not look like the other characters that you have to look like, or there's a multitude of other things almost very rarely if you're good at what you do it's not about how actually how good you are which is the one thing you worry about as an actor going well I'm not good enough yeah to do it I don't have the talent or I don't have the whatever it is it's almost that's one of the last things it's do you fit into the group can you do this do you look like this are you the right age are you all of these other things and as soon as you kind of gather that in and just kind of go okay you just got you just move okay fine just move on fine I just shrugged that off, and now I'm going to think about what I'm going to have for dinner. Like and that was the most refreshing power. thing. Is it? Uh, just yeah, the I love weight, that. the lack of mental health kind of worry about mm. then brooding over it. So then the next time that next audition comes around, you're then thinking, "Oh God, it's got to be. It's really got to be." It's like that thing in all auditions of going, they can taste your fear if you go in and go, "Hello, oh hi, hi, yes, hello." They're going to go, yeah, "No, yeah. not you, not you, absolutely <laughs> not. I can't spend six months with that." Uh, coming at me all the time um so yeah so i don't remember the first time that it happened but i remember that change where it then didn't matter yeah i think i think as an actor you really have to build up this resilience and i think that's maybe what i was harking back to this situation we have to build up a we built up a good sense of coping with with you know this kind of uncertainty and adversity in our lives and and maybe it primes us um pretty well for this situation now this this uncertainty maybe not um, we're not like we're Navy SEALs or anything. We're probably not the best at dealing with um, moments of crisis. But I remember um, uh, an acting teacher once said, I think it was Larry Moss, that, um, said that as an actor, you need the, the heart of a lion and, and the hide of a rhino. So you need to have that, you know, vulnerability, that huge vulnerability, but also that capacity to shut out the negativity. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that building up that resilience was something that I don't envy in you, John. I don't know how you, you came to that at such a young age, but you seem pretty well adjusted. So my, my question to you is, when are we going to stop calling your character Young Ian? How <laughs> much more growing up is there left to do for this young man? Can't we just call him Ian now? <laughs> um, he's still got a whole lot of story to go. Let's hope he get, we get to tell it. But yeah, I think he's, I like Young Ian. Keep him young. Keep Got him plenty, young. Plenty, plenty of time to get old. He can still be young again for now. Not old I mean, and cynical and bitter. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, John, this has been an, an utter pleasure, I have to say. Thank you so much for uh, for being so open, so honest, and for, uh, for, and for giving us your time uh, this morning. I assume from where you are, it's glorious sunshine, and we're keeping you from a balcony. <laughs> you know what it's actually been absolutely pouring it down recently which is not like spain but finally some sun today so that's good i will be enjoying a bit of a balcony recently but thank you so much as well for having me it's been a pleasure well, i know we're not you. you know i know we're not saving lives or doing anything like that at the moment but if we can make someone's day a little less boring then i guess that's what we can do and in mohawk <laughs> what do we got come on you give us a thank you in mohawk i would say um I would just be Skinungoa, which just means may the great peace be with you. So, well, I'm going to say that to you. Skinungoa to Perfect. you, John, and thank you. <laughs> thank you, guys. Hello, and welcome to uh, the part of the show where we plumb the depths of our inbox to find the best question that you, our wonderful listeners, have sent in. This one is from Bernard. Hello, hello, Bernard. Bernard Hi, is Bernard. Wales. Hi, Bernard. Hi, Bernard. Wales. He asks, Dear David and Tim, I have recently learned Klingon uh, to quite a high level. What alien language would you most like to learn? Uh, I am now trying to learn Elfish. Well, thank you, Bernie. That's a very, that's a very uh, tr tricky question. Um, I'm trying to think of... Uh, well, alien languages that I would love love to learn. Klingon, obviously, is the classic. The language of the Mysterons might be uh, might mm. be one. I mean, personally, I'd just quite like to learn French. Yeah, well, I've spent a lot of time trying to, to figure out uh, 
the Scottish accent, which I think is a bit of an alien language myself. Mm. Mm. Uh, so uh, one day I'll figure out what uh, what the hell they're saying. Absolutely. And of course, the language we'd all like to all like to learn is the language of love. Oh. Oh, I think we could all learn learn yeah. from that. How do you, I, I believe um, there is a word for that in Klingon. Um, perhaps Bernard, you could write in and tell us what that is. Mm. It's very guttural language, mm. quite phlegmy. And it's very similar with uh, Scottish, apparently. The way you say "I love you" is like I love you, or something like that. Mm. Well, thank you, Bernard. I hope you find uh, a mate that will enjoy the Klingon language with you, and maybe there will be some little little Klingons running around. We can all hope for that. What a wonderful sight that would be! Very, very big foreheads, Klingons. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you for listening to Outcasts. Please remember to rate, subscribe and leave a review as it all helps. Follow us on our Instagram page at outcast.podcast for all the latest updates. Or you can send us an email at outcastspodcastshow at gmail.com. Every week we shall select a question from one of our listeners to answer on the show. The theme music is composed by Kieran Ledwidge. All views and opinions expressed on the show are our own and have no affiliation with the series of books written by Diana Gabaldone or the Sony Stars television show Outlander. No animals were harmed in the making of this podcast. Although I did have a ham sandwich earlier. So. See you next time. See you next time. This episode deals in part with issues of mental health. If you or anyone you know has been affected, then do please get in touch with a doctor, healthcare professional, or mental health hotline. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.